2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. O Lord, open this text to our understanding that the light may shine even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The reformers of the 1500s had a phrase called post tenebras lux, which means literally after darkness, light. It was on the seal of the city of Geneva where Calvin ministered for many decades. It was a summary of their thought about the work that God had done in their midst, that God had brought out of the darkness of the Middle Ages when the gospel had been obscured in traditionalism and had been obscured by works righteousness, that out of that dark time, the light had sprung historically, starting with the 1517 nailing of 95 theses to a door by Martin Luther, prepared, of course, by the pre-Reformation heroes like Jan Hus and Tyndale. But we see a great outbreak of light in history at that time. And also, we need to be clear that this shining forth of light that we see in chapter 4, verse 6, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts, is a light that comes into our lives personally as we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as we believe and receive Christ. But we need also to wonder about this, that there is a danger we can face, that we can go back into the darkness. We can revert to the dark ways of our unsaved life. We can be lulled into abandoning the life that is given to us in Christ. And the scripture lesson that is before us this morning in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 begins with this idea of losing heart. Verses 1 and 2, losing heart we are tempted to compromise. And we will open up then verses 3 and 4, blinded by Satan, we do not believe. And then verses 5 and 6, God commands and then inhabits the shining light. You know, we can have a relationship with Christ, but we can then be tempted to lose heart and descend into walking in craftiness, verse 2. Deceit and shame, verse 2. Basically, to throw it all away and walk into the darkness again after having been brought into the light. Be careful, as you have committed to follow Christ, not to go back to the darkness again. 
The danger specified here in verse 1 of chapter 4 is losing heart. It means to have an inner core of our being, our heart, that is weary, faint of energy, so weak that we basically give up because we don't feel the vitality within to keep on living as disciples of Jesus. Yes, weariness can hit us. Physical tiredness can hit us. And that's something different. It's something that I have experienced, you've experienced, I'm sure. And that's why we have a Sabbath. One of my sisters in the Lord reminded me of the Christian Sabbath Sunday, the day of rest, and the command to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. There's a faithful rhythm of life to consider Sundays different, a day for gathering with God's people in worship, to change the routine of our life regarding shopping and entertainment and work so that we are refreshed in the presence of the Lord. And we even offer an evening service so you can close the day with the Lord if you're called to do that. Just as the apostles and early church worshiped on the first day of the week, we do also. And we need that rest. But this losing heart here in verse 1 is different. This is more than a physical tiredness or an emotional weariness. This is a spiritual loss of conviction that Christ is worth it. It's an attitude of disillusionment, which if left unchecked, can lead us to the shame and the craftiness and the deceit of verse 2. Now, Paul states that although he's been tempted by uh, losing heart, he has not, in fact, lost heart. And he proves it by saying, verse 2, we've renounced the hidden things of shame. We're not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He is carrying on. And he is comparing himself favorably to those false apostles that will come to study in 10 through 13 of this book. And they are the ones who are being crafty, handling the word of God deceitfully. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, we need to have this pointed out to us. We, we need to have a gut check in light of God's word. Am I living deceitfully? The light of Christ is the enemy of our deceit. The light of Christ is the enemy of our sin. And if we are committed to sin, well, we naturally want to avoid Jesus. If I owe money to a company, I don't open the letters in the mail that come from that company. And sooner or later, I start not opening the letters that have a return address that I don't recognize because they passed it off to the collection agency. You see, when I owe somebody and I don't want to fess up to it, I avoid, I stay in the darkness. But the wonderful truth about Jesus is that when he is convicting us, he is sweetly saving us. R.C. Sproul pointed it out in our video. Do you remember that one, if you heard it? He said, you know, when Jesus comes to convicted of us of our sin, there's something sweet about it because he's there with his love to receive us in forgiveness. The devil just comes with accusation. That's how you can tell the difference. The devil is accusing and he gives no recourse, no way out. But with Jesus, he welcomes us, the arms, with his nail-pierced wounds, embrace us 
and invite us to come home. And that's why it's so important that we don't run from God. We don't run from Jesus when we're convicted. He wants us. He finds joy in forgiving us. Sad reality is that we sometimes think we're like the Samaritan woman at the well and we have to cover up and we are trying to make ourselves sound so religious like she did in talking about her mount. But Jesus cuts right through it and says, you know, the, the man you're with now is not your husband and you've had six before. But he doesn't leave her there. He offers her living water and she's saved and she goes into her town. We need people who are saved, who are going to tell their family, who are going to tell their town how good Jesus is. He's about the light. He's about telling the truth, manifestation of the truth. Verse 2, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. And yet he is about the forgiveness that comes. The mercy, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. It's the ground of your walk. It's the mercy of God. This is how we don't give up, even when we're tempted by the trials of life. Losing heart means that we want to leave the living gospel of Christ. And why do we feel that way sometimes? It's because when conviction of sin happens, it's a gut check. And we have a choice at that moment to come to Christ or run further. And when we are dying to sin, it hurts. There is real deprivation of self, of momentary pleasure, and it hurts. And so we don't like to hurt when we're deprived of our pleasure. But as R.C. Sproul said today, the purpose is not pleasure. The purpose is happiness. And you're never going to get happiness by sinning. And so I want you to say no to sin. I want you to say no to relationships, which in themselves may not be sinful, but are dangerous relationships. I remember when I was in England, I sang in the choir. We sang Handel's Israel and Egypt, a great oratorio, less known than the Messiah, but beautiful. And I was in the tenor section. And after the last performance at the end of the semester, I was invited back to the cathedral close, which is a wall around the cathedral. And there are certain houses within that wall. And I was invited there by two of my classmates in the tenor section. They said, hey, come by for some dinner. And I went by for dinner, and I've always obeyed my mother most of the time. Joe Burrow was telling me the other day how her father told her never to honk the horn in the driveway. You just don't do that. That's rude. I gave her permission. My mother told me, you don't eat and run. You just don't go like you were going there for the food and then run out the door. But this night, I had to eat and run because it didn't feel right. It just didn't feel right. I ate my dinner. These two guys are sitting there. I said, I'm out of here. And I went home. And I think my mother would have understood. You have to be careful. You have to deny yourself. You have to be wise in your walk. And that... Self-denial is what God is doing to make us holy. And your happiness will come as a result of your holiness. Second point, blinded by Satan, 
we do not believe. We can get hung up on who accepts us or not. And that's the accusation that came against Paul here. They are accusing him, well, you know, if your gospel is the right gospel, how come there are so many people who don't believe it? How come we don't believe it if what you're saying is the truth? We don't like the idea of rejection. And Paul, at this point, states, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with the people who are perishing. And he is saying, here is the truth, and I am not going to be intimidated by the fact that you don't believe it. You know, all of us have this sense that, hey, we don't want to be rejected. We want our boss to like us. We want our neighbors to like us. We want our relatives to like us. But sometimes they don't because we believe in Jesus. We have a biblically-based ethic of life. And following Jesus may cost us some relationships. Elder Ralph was just saying in the intro to Sunday school, he was talking about college students who feel left out because they believe upon Christ. And that's where we're at. You don't grow out of that. I'll tell you this. This is England Day, so I'll tell you another story from my college years. I was at the University of East Anglia. I was going to Holy Trinity Church in Norwich, and the curate, Hugh Palmer, said to me, your faith may cost you some valued relationships. Are you willing to put your faith in Christ for a First. And I said, I hardly have any relationships. I'm like a duck out of water, fish out of water over here. You know, it wasn't that bad. But I just said, what are you talking about? And I guess I get it now. Sometimes you have to say no. When people are being a bigger influence on you and your behavior than you are on them, you got to step out. And don't be intimidated by them accusing you that you've got the wrong gospel. It could be that they are in the wrong. They are perishing. Why? Because their minds have blinded them to the truth. Paul had the truth of the gospel. He was converted on the road to Damascus. He saw the ascended and resurrected Lord. This is the Lord who he knew had been put to death on the cross. And they said he was resurrected, but he didn't believe a word of that. But then he saw him, and he saw that there is a gospel and this gospel is that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day and appeared to many, even 500. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. This is the gospel, and it was a gospel of community. And I want to share this to help you prepare for communion next Sunday. I forgot to say this earlier. We are a church. We're a community. And we need to be sure that we are in right relationship horizontally as well as ver vertically. If you've got a bitter heart to somebody in this community, you have a week to just, as far as it's up to you, to try to make peace. Pick up the phone, write them a note, send them an email, start the conversation. We want you to be prepared to confess your sins even before God, but to be reconciled to the church family. So here we are in this family, and that's what Paul was noticing when Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
he says, what are you talking about? You're up there. I can't touch you. He's saying, why are you persecuting my church, the body of Christ? Why are you hurting them? All kinds of theology come out of this encounter on the Damascus Road. And he believes, he believes that his gift, his, his faith is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This gospel is the truth, and it was opposed by those in Corinth. And I want to ask you today to consider that when the blinding of the God of this age has touched someone close to you, that you would pray for them. The God of this age is Satan. He is not going to have any place to go in the age to come. That's why he's called the age God of this age. He's going to be cast into the fiery pit in the age to come. He's not going to have any access to anybody who's a saved person. But in this age, he has a certain freedom allowed to him by God, and yet he is not a God. He is considered a God, as Calvin says, the devil is called the God of this age in no other way than Baal was called the God of those who worshipped him or the dog, the God of Egypt, unquote. And so the dreadful consequence of following the devil, of following unbelief, is that we are blinded by that. The further we go into that not believing upon Christ, the more and more blinded we receive. Are, are found to be as an act of God's judgment upon the willful and persistent rebelliousness of the human heart. This is what happened to Pharaoh when his heart was hardened. And so I call you today to pray for your loved ones, pray for your friends, pray for your work associates, pray for your neighbors, that God would humble our friends, our relatives, that God would give a hunger for the truth, that the light would shine through to them, and that they would have the scales taken off from their eyes, that they would see Christ. And that is our third and final point, verses 5 through 6. God shining brings light through the word. God shines, and the word is first coming by command, and then it comes embodied in the very person of Christ. If you look here at verses 5 and 6, we see first in verse 5 a summary of what we need to be saved, and then how to continue to in our saved service of God. There's three elements there. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. This is what you need to approach God, and it is also what you need to continue in your relationship with God. First of all, we don't preach ourselves. I am not sufficient to save myself. I am not sufficient to save others. I need another, and that other is God. I have a total inability to save. And this is an aspect of the depravity of sin, that we are depraved in every part of our being, our will, our mind, our physical uh, affections, 
All of this is touched by sin, and we cannot save ourselves. Secondly, we see in verse number five, the second phrase, but Christ Jesus the Lord. The three names there point to three aspects of sound words, understanding about who God is. First, it's a humility before God. We see that we are uh, uh, needing to learn of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promises of God given in the Old Testament, that we need to receive something that was promised, that we need to accept something that was given before by promise in the Old Testament. And we need that promise that he is going to be a, a sacrifice for sin, even as we get the, 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 the promise given in Isaiah 53. Then we see the word Jesus. He is the incarnate son of Mary. He is God incarnate, but he is the son of a woman. He is a human, fully human, 100% human. And then we see that word there, Lord. He is 100% man. So we get this truth that the promised one is holy God, so he has power to save me and power to save all his elect. And he is also man, so that he can rightly represent me as taking my guilt. For God made him to be sin, who had no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He couldn't take on our sin unless he was truly human. And as a second Adam, having fulfilled all righteousness, and therefore was a person rightly offered as a sin offering, innocent and pure and holy. Here's a man who not only died for us, but he healed the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. And that's the Savior I need. I need the one who will heal my soul, who will cast out evil, and who will raise me with a transformed body at the last day, fulfilling all the promises of the Messiah presented in the Old Testament. I need this Savior. I need him I am not going to preach myself. I can't fix myself. I need more than another Tony Robbins self-actualization program. I need more than a Dave Ramsey get-out-of-debt program. I need more than a $1,400 stimulus check or anything else the government will send my way. I need Jesus. And then when I'm changed, I want to become like the bondservant talked about here in verse 5, that I will be a servant to others. Here was the preeminent apostle. He was criticized by the Corinthians, and yet he comes to them and he says, I'm your bondservant. I'm not only the bondservant of Jesus, which he says in Philippians 1, and which he says in Galatians 1, verse 10, and Romans 1, I'm your bondservant. I'm your doulos. I'm your slave. But I am your slave for Jesus' sake. In other words, I'm your slave, but you're not my master. I'm your slave, and Jesus is my master. I am free because I am free in Christ. I have liberty in Christ. But I will choose to serve 
you. And that is what we need to do as believers. Though I am free of all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more, 1 Corinthians 9.19. If you want to reach somebody for Christ, you need to serve that person and love that person. Christ is our sole master, but I voluntarily put myself in the servant of Christ, in the service of Christ, to reach people for Christ. And so as we come, as we consider this last verse, we see the beauty of this fact that the one who created life by command at the first creation recorded in Genesis 1, that that same God inhabits the life, inhabits the light, and brings it into our life. You recall from Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. That speaking is the word of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is called the word of God. That very act of speaking is the eternal Son creating photons, wave and particle packets of light that then illuminated the creation. It's the Word who did that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. It happened by the Word, by the sheer declaration and creation out of nothing. But then when it comes to the recreation, that's the first creation, the light comes by command. But in the recreation of sinful man, the light itself is Christ. He shines in our hearts. As Brother uh, Ken was saying, as he looks forward to our Sunday school class next Sunday, to which I invite you, Union with Christ at 9.30 in the morning. He was talking about how when, when Christ is, is, is in our hearts, he is close to us. He has got connection to us. And this light comes in. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who comes to me shall never walk in the light, darkness again. As a believer, come to Christ today. Recognize the danger of weariness, of losing heart trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. But recall the last verse of what we studied last week, that this living is just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit dwells within, and we are given Christ to empower us that we would not descend to shame or deceit or craftiness, and if you're not a believer here today, I call you to receive your identity from the Lord. Know your adoption as a daughter and son as you are forgiven at the cross of Calvary, that you are looked upon and regarded as 
not guilty, and then brought into the arms of the Savior. You are part of the family. That is who you are. And you don't have to please the crowd. You don't have to worry about what they're thinking about you. And the fact that the gospel is veiled, it's not about the gospel being deficient. It's about them. Don't worry about it because you're part of God's family. And finally, come to him as you trust in Christ Jesus the Lord, becoming a servant and knowing that as the light shines in your heart, it will reflect off your life, life into the lives of others, that they too could see the light and come to the Savior. Let us pray. Lord, bless us today. May the light shine powerfully. You have created the light at that beginning, and you are shining that light into our hearts by that same word, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Come today, shine the light on hearts that don't believe. Bring them the hope that they too may know a place in your family and never leave you because they are filled by the Spirit, walking with the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.